Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are the Ladies of Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. I'm Alice Marcus Krieg. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. We are back in the studio. It has been a very long season. Yeah, we're so glad to be back. Um, it feels really good. It's awesome weather here in New York. Yes. And it's nice not to be on a baking hot rooftop right yes, now. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, We Dig Plants brings the culture to horticulture, and we're kicking off our fourth season. Can you believe it, Alice? Hey! This is our fourth season <laughs> at Heritage. We're really, really proud to be part of Heritage. And um, we're kicking off the season with a show about heritage, specifically um, a part of our agricultural heritage and what some amazing researchers are doing to preserve the genes of some of our favorite crops. But before we get into all of that, Alice and I want to tell you about two new and fun elements that we're adding to the show this season. Alice, you want to tell them about some Free stuff. Free stuff. So each week, um, we're going to have a, like a raffle. Um, so you have to be a member, or a, you have to like us on Facebook. Um, and we will pick a person at random and give away some super cool tool or a book or some other garden-related item. So we'll pick a, a fan at random the day after each show, and we'll post the winner's name on Facebook. And we'll need your address, of course, so we can send it to you. But again, you have to like us on Facebook. That's all you have to do. We're not going to make you jump through hoops or give us your email address. Maybe. Well, jumping through <laughs> hoops. Some horticultural hoops. But um, just just be friends with us on Facebook. Like us, like us. You have to like us on Facebook, and then you'll have a chance to win. And this week, we're giving away the Vegetable Gardener's Guide to Permaculture. Yes, if anybody's interested, that is the prize. A great new book. And what else, Alice? Are we doing the Horticultural way? Honor Roll? Woohoo! Drum roll, please. Joe, can we get some music? Drum roll music. <laughs> um. All right. Yes. <laughs> okay. So each week. We're going to um, uh, share with you the origins of one of our favorite plant names and the story of the sometimes obscure person who discovered that plant. <laughs> That's right. And we're going to start with a dead German botanist. This yes. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. So we decided first on a roll, first on a roll uh, member is Fuchsia. And the fuchsia is a genus of flowering plants that consists mostly of shrubs and small trees. And the first fuchsia was discovered on the Caribbean island of Hispaniola. It was fuchsia triphylla. 
And it was now that island, of course, is the Dominican, half Dominican Republic, half Haiti. It was discovered in the 17th century by the French Minim monk and botanist Charles Plumier. Um, of course, you know, somebody Plumier, mo- Plumier which I think he also, um, some plants were named after him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he named the, this new genus of plants after the renowned German botanist Leonhard Fuchs. And Leonhard Fuchs was a German physician and botanist. And his chief notability is the author of a huge book about plants and their uses as medicines, a, a type of herbal that was published in 1542. And it had 500 accurate and detailed drawings of plants, which were printed from woodcuts. Now, the drawings are the book's most notable advance on its predecessor. There were lots of herbals before, but the plants, the drawings didn't look like the actual plants. Exactly. So people were, were using it <laughs> so to, to left, treat. Left something to the imagination. It did, but the herbalists and the pharmacists were using these inaccurate pictures to uh-huh. choose plants to treat people, so I'm sure there were some disastrous results. <laughs> anyway, we have Fuchs' book to thank. He emphasized high quality drawings as the most telling way to specify what a plant name stands for. So so when you buy that Home Depot fuchsia, <laughs> you can think of the dead German botanist. Now, we... Because uh, that's what I think about. Yes. <laughs> well, we, Alice and I, you know, as you know from listening to the show, we have a lot of opinions about plants and we have opinions about what fuchsias you should grow. So later this week, we're going to post some pictures of our favorite varieties, as well as a photo of the dead, uh, not dead, but of uh, Fuchs alive. <laughs> um, on no our dead. <laughs> no dead botanist photos, just, um, just old botanist photos. All right. So now let's get into the meat of the show, um, so to speak. Um, it's got a little bit of a historical bent and a little bit of a heritage bent uh, this week. Um, at the Wisconsin State Fair in Milwaukee in 1859, Two years before he became the 16th president, Abraham Lincoln gave an address that I think captures his views on the importance of disseminating agricultural knowledge. And I'm going to quote Lincoln now, which I probably will never do again on this show. (laughs) What voice are you going to use? (laughs) I don't know. Should I use my Brooklyn accent? Um, Deep, manly voice. Here's what Lincoln said. But the chief use of agricultural fairs is to aid in improving the great calling of agriculture in all its departments and minute divisions, to make mutual exchange of agricultural discovery, information, and knowledge, so that at the end all may know everything, which may have been known to but one or to but few, at the beginning to bring together especially all which is supposed to be not generally known because of recent discovery or invention. And he also said, and not only to bring together... And to impart all which has been accidentally discovered and invented upon ordinary motive, but by exciting emulation for premiums and for the pride and honor of success, of triumph in some sort, to stimulate that discovery and invention into extraordinary activity. In this, these fairs are kindred to the patent clause in the Constitution of the United States and to that department and practical system based upon that clause. I think that should be, um, if we could do an intro to our show, it should be like Star Wars, you know, where it, like the, the text fades off. Yes. Into and we can have Lincoln's quote. That's right. Well, Lincoln, so this, this he made this, he, he made this public uh, address at a state fair two years before he became president. But once he became president, 
he put money where his mouth was. That's right. And in the three in a three month span, listen to what he accomplished. In a three month span in 1862, Lincoln signed into law three important pieces of legislation that would have a profound and lasting impact on U.S. agriculture and society. He established the Department of Agriculture before it did not exist. He um, established the Homestead Act, which stimulated Western migration by offering qualified individuals 160 acres of of public land for settlement and cultivation. Mm -hmm. And he also established the Morrill Land Grant College Act, which provided public lands to all the U.S. states and territories for the establishment of colleges specializing in agricultural research and instruction. Mm-hmm. These are the state colleges mm-hmm. of today. You yep. know, here in New York, it's the Cornell, ag schools, the ag right. schools. So, and not only did he do that in a three-month period, he also was responsible for the Pacific Railway Act, mm-hmm. which provided federal money to support the first transcontinental railroad, which was completed many years after his death, and the Emancipation Proclamation. So, what can you say? Yeah, you know. You know, we can't even get a health care act. Big man, big, <laughs> big hat, big hat. Big ideas. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the whole preface to the show. To put it in perspective, today, the USDA continues Lincoln's mandate of sharing knowledge that he, that he set forth when he established it more than 150 years ago. I think last year the USDA celebrated 150 years. Mm-hmm. So nowhere, I think, is, is the mandate more evident than at the agricultural research stations scattered throughout the country. And, you know, when, when we were thinking about the show, we were thinking, you know, every time the USDA is in the news, it's always because of some food scare or something terrible that's happened. And they're blaming the USDA for not checking up on this or that, you know, or some other sensationalized event. But they're doing important work. So we wanted to focus on some of the serious work that they're doing all over the country and that sort of impacts our daily lives without us even realizing it. Right. And today we have one of the chief scientists, Dr. Kim Hummer from the USDA um, Agricultural Research Station located in Corvallis, Oregon, with us to discuss some of their work there. Alice, will you share some of um, yeah. Dr. Hummer's uh, CV with us? Yeah. Well, hi, Kim. You're on the line, right? Hello. Yes, I am here. I'm very pleased to be with you folks today. Good. Thank you. Well, let me, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. You've been active in horticultural research for the past 37 years, and your specialty is the conservation of fruit, nut, and specialty crop genetic resources. Your present research passion involves the study of Pelodi. Is that how you pronounce Ploidy. it? Ploidy. It's the number of sets of chromosomes that a plant has. Right. Good. They I'm glad can you have <laughs> multiple sets of chromosomes, and sometimes the fruit is bigger that way. Right. And you specifically study this in berry species. Um, yes. And you actively studied genetic, the, you study the genetics of blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, currants, gooseberries, and unusual berry crops, such as the blue honeysuckle and the elderberry. And during your career, you've been a participant of more than 17 plant collecting and exchange expeditions to locations including China, Canada, India, Italy, Japan, Portugal, Russia, and throughout the United States. That's some passport you have. I know. I would. <laughs> yes, it's really exciting being a plant explorer. It is. And, and you've also been selected as specialty crop curator for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, yeah, yes, tell me a little a bit more about that. There's a curators actually across the country. So I, I am the, uh, one of them uh, in, um, in Corvallis, Oregon, okay. and my, my main crops are berries and some other specialty crops. Mm-hmm. Um, and during a local 
plant collecting trip, you recently discovered and named a new species of strawberry in Oregon. And um, tell us about that. Oh, yeah, that was really exciting. I, um, we were in the lab uh, working with a grad student, some other scientists, and found that there was some uh, unusual amounts of uh, chromosomes in this one strawberry plant. In fact, it had ten sets of chromosomes instead of the usual eight. Um, the strawberries that we get from the grocery store, the big red-fruited type, they the have Driscoll eight ones? sets of chromosomes. Right. Ah, um, ah. So the one that I found uh, has 10 sets of chromosomes. And so then I was um, uh, finding that, well, I wondered how far was this particular clone um, uh, distributed in the wild. And so I began taking trips up different river drainages in Oregon, up in the mountains over here and over there, and found that um, there's a... um, in the high peak region of the Oregon Cascade Mountains, there is a, uh, a patch of strawberries that stretches all the way from Mount Hood in the north to Crater Lake in the south, only in the high elevation regions from 3,000 to 5,000 feet. Hmm. And, uh, and this set of uh, the, uh, the strawberry with the set of 10 chromosomes uh, is there. It, it has uh, a leaf that has hairs on the top, and, and so that when I'm out hiking, I go around and feel the leaves of strawberry plants <laughs> to see if it's my uh, special species. Right. Well, it's named after you, Kim, right? Uh, well, it has it's your name the now. Cas- cascadensis. <laughs> It's Fragaria cascadensis, and then the way botanists use a, um, a name, you, you put the name of the author uh, right after, after the genus species name. Right. So, um, uh, if, uh, for example, um, um, Vaccinium corumbosum is the highbush blueberry, but you'll see Vaccinium corumbosum L period. So that L period means Linnaeus was the one that named that species. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in this case, Hummer is, just means that I'm the one that named that species. Well, so, so, and nowhere else on the planet is this 10-chromosome strawberry. Is that right? Uh, no, at this point in time, I, uh, we've been looking, and we have quite a diverse strawberry collection uh, uh-huh. here, and I didn't get to talk about the unit, but I'll, I'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, we haven't found uh, any other strawberries exactly like that species. And I was looking in California and Washington and Idaho and, and uh, uh, from specimens that we have from around the world. Uh-huh. Um, now, there's other species that have 10 sets of chromosomes. There's one on Itroop Island in the Kuril Islands, uh, but that's a whole different species than this one here in the Cascades. Well, tell us okay. about the unit, um, Kim, tell us, <laughs> tell us about what you all are doing there. We gave, we gave sure. a very long, long, long intro it to did. the USDA. It was so exciting to hear that. And, and I want to mention that, yes, the U.S. Department of Agriculture <laughs> is doing really good things. Yes. There are, are good things that your tax dollars are doing, uh, going, uh, going to. And, and one of them is our national plant germplasm system where we are conserving genetic diversity of economically important food and fiber crops for the whole country. And there's about 25 different locations around the country, including Corvallis, Oregon, where I'm located. But there's uh, Ames, Iowa, and Geneva, New York, and, and uh, experiment 
Station, Georgia, and and at these places they have um, assigned plant materials that are uh, appropriate for uh, the region around there. So, for example, at Ames, Iowa, they have the corn collection. Mm-hmm. At Geneva, New York, they have apples mm-hmm. and grapes. Uh, at Davis, California, they have the stone fruits uh, and uh, walnuts and, and a, a number of different crops. And then here in Corvallis, we have been assigned the berry crops, pears, hazelnut, mint, and hop. Uh, and, and so we have about 30 different genera of plants that, that we take care of. We have living collections. It's not like a pressed specimen collection at an herbarium. Uh-huh. We keep plants in pots. Uh-huh. And the reason is we support people that are doing breeding uh, research uh, that want to make crosses and improve strawberry cultivars, for example. So um, some of us go out in the wild, like I was saying, we collect from uh, wild localities throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work with the quarantine people. We bring back things safely so that they're clean and we don't bring back the diseases. Right. Uh, and we bring uh, seeds or plants, it depends. So we have a, a library of genes here that breeders can come to us and say, hey, I'd like to make a cross with the plant material you got from Chile back in 1990. Mm -hmm. And we have some living plants. We can give them pollen or Mm -hmm. we can give them seed or or runners or maybe they're just looking at the leaves right now because they're doing some experiments with them, that kind of thing. So um, each of these 25 locations throughout the country have a set of plant material they've been assigned, and they do this kind of thing. They conserve the genetic diversity of this plant material. Right. Hang on one second, Kim. We have to take a break, but um, sure. I want to come right back to you and talk about that unicorn strawberry. Hang on one <laughs> okay. second. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. This song is called Favorite Flower by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Welcome back, We Dig Plants. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. Thank you for that sweet, sweet North Pacific music that you just played there. I feel like we just took a little trip to Hawaii. Yeah. What a beautiful song. Um, so we're, we're talking with Dr. Kim Hummer from the USDA in Corvallis about um, the gene bank that she uh, works at and for. So tell us a little bit more um, about the strawberry and the blueberry and some of the things that you're working on. Okay, so not only do we have wild plant material, but we have 
uh, cultivars, too. We have heritage cultivars, which I'm sure you guys are all interested that uh, heritage cultivars are being conserved. And, see, uh, some of these old types have been propagated by runners um, uh, since they've been released, Mm -hmm. or, say, for the blueberries, they've been propagated by cuttings. Uh, And so we have these plant material of these heritage cultivars in our collection. And it might be that, say, like Marshall Strawberry, it was a favorite of uh, people uh, uh, back in the 40s, and uh, and many people here in the Pacific Northwest can remember going to their grandmother's uh, house or farm and and going in the backyard and just um, chowing down on the great strawberries with the great flavor. Uh, and Marshall has a wonderful flavor, but it is a very, very soft fruit, so it's not one that can be easily transported. Right. And uh, it, it would uh, bleed all the way to the processing plants, as, as one of my um, <laughs> the retired colleagues, uh, Dr. Whitey Lawrence, mentioned. You could always find uh, where the uh, Marshall strawberry fields were because there was a trail of, like a of strawberry scene. juice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see it's hard to transport strawberries when they're so fresh and juicy. Yes. So that unfortunately is why some of the breeders, um, if, for example, those in California that are breeding for strawberries to be shipped to you guys in New York City, um, they have to be a little firmer. Uh, but of course, it's it's uh, this pendulum swung, so they're pretty firm and they're pretty white, and they're not so much flavor. Right. Uh, but they are strawberries, so so that's the challenge. Breeders are now trying to find out how you can get flavor packed into a fruit that can be transmitted uh, clear across the country. Right. Actually, Carmen and I were at a trade show a couple of years ago, and we saw a pink blueberry. Do you remember that, Carmen? Yeah. And it was supposed to be a sweeter blueberry, and the USDA had developed it. Developed it. One of my colleagues, um, Dr. Mark Ehlenfeldt in New Jersey, has released a uh, pink lemonade and also uh, pink champagne. There are several different types of pinks. Um, People are now playing with the the uh, pigments in all these fruits, uh, looking for darker ones or whiter ones, uh, or uh, and and so this this is one of the new releases that he has made. Yeah, yeah, it looked great actually, and they were also des- um, developing it into a patio size species, which yeah. was really great too for Container, city for, for city gardens. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. people are wanting to grow more and more of their own. Uh, fruits. fruits and vegetables for yeah. flavor. Do you think Kim will ever get a good tasting, commercially grown strawberry in the near future? <laughs> uh, well, you see, we're lucky in the Northwest. We're yeah. closer to the field, so yeah. Yeah. a lot of the uh, strawberries that are bred around here do really have uh, better taste. But but there are commercial companies out there now um, uh, in, in California and elsewhere that are developing. Uh, tastier fruit, um, uh, but you're right. At the moment, you know, the shipping takes precedence over and the size. flavor in many cases, yeah. and so. size too. There's well, no, you know, like they they just seem to have plumped up the size um, so much at the expense of. I mean, I think they were saying, oh, well, maybe they'll think, you know, bigger strawberry, more. Right. I don't know, just it's sexier or, you know, it's just more fruit, you know. But the best tasting strawberry I ever had in my lifetime was in the mountains of Italy. 
Yeah. You know, those Alpine uh, Frey de Bois, you know, those, like, they were incredible. They were puny. Like, they were, you know, very tiny. But they were the best tasting, you know, strawberry I've ever eaten. Well, I think what you have to do is get the plant um, as a gardener and, you know, Work, well, work you know, that way. strawberries have so many flavor components. They have more than 360 different compounds that uh, affect our tongue. And, and our tongue is a very sensitive agent in, in dealing with this. So um, it, it, there are many older heritage ones that have good flavor, and, mm-hmm. and people are making new breeds. <clears throat> that have crossed some of these flavorful strawberries, too. So uh, don't give up on that. I think <laughs> buy local and look yeah. at for some of the heritage strawberries, and, and you'll get the flavor you're hoping for. Well, full disclosure, Kim, um, the, the, the way we came to you was actually from one of our listeners, a woman named Leah, who is propagating and selling the Marshall strawberry. Yes. Yeah. And, mm, that's um, how we found you. That's how we found you. <laughs> she she um, sent us an email telling us about the Marshall strawberry, and, and it, it kind of led to a larger show, which is why we wanted to have you on, to talk more in a general sense about what right. the work that you all do. Yeah, because I think she's she's propagating them and selling them, but she's not a farmer per se. She's I think she's a, an artist. She's an I artist think. and yeah. she she just loves this strawberry and the idea of of the heritage, you know, history and, and bringing well, it back we, into cultivation. We work with nurserymen and yeah. so many of the nurserymen are are interested to get Marshall back in the trade because there is um, a market out there for people who want Marshall uh, strawberry plants. Right. So, well, there's a grower um, hopefully up in Maine. As, as more nurserymen uh, can propagate and distribute this, it'll become more available to everybody. Right, right. And usually strawberries don't have a problem uh, spreading around. Runnering. Like no, runnering. Yeah, right. <laughs> as I've discovered in my own garden. But I do get a puny crop. I haven't figured out quite how to do it right. And somebody told me that actually most growers treat strawberries like an annual. They don't, the mother plant is discarded and composted and the runners are replanted. Is that right? In different parts of the country, uh, for example, in California, it's more amenable to treat strawberries as an annual. Mm. Usually in the north, we have a three-year growing cycle, and, mm. and there's a different cultivating mechanism. So, okay. it, it, yes, it can be uh, worked either way. So aren't you now using genes from uh, newly rediscovered species, like from South America, to add new genetic material to the well, existing cultivar? Yes, the strawberry has a, a very interesting origin. Um, uh, there was some plant material from Concepcion, Chile, that was brought in 1711 to a garden in France. And there in France, this Fregaria uh, chil- uh, chiloensis, Forma chiloensis, which is a white-fruited type, and it had larger fruits than what people were used to, it was, uh, was accidentally crossed. Uh, it was just sitting out there in the garden, and some pollen from Fregaria virginiana that one of the or- early explorers had collected and sent to France. That pollen uh, landed on the chiloensis from Chile, and then uh, some seedlings that were really hybrid vigor, big, big leaves uh, were found. And this fellow, uh, Duchesne, um, who was a young botanist uh, in uh, Jussot's garden in France. He was the first one to see these hybrids, and he recognized them for what they were, that 
that Chilowensis was the mother and Virginiana from Quebec was the father. Uh. So um, that, after that, people realized you could start making these crosses, and breeders in England and France and everywhere started improving the strawberries to get to where we are today. Right, right. So, yes, we have gone back to Chile, collected some wild material there. We have, uh, are in the process of collecting all through the North American uh, and, and uh, United States uh, and Canada. Um, and we're, we're reconstituting this cross. We're, we're broadening, as we call the gene pool, the selection of genes that, uh, from the wild that um, have formed the cultivated strawberries, so that we can work more resistance in and uh, all sorts of good traits. It's so. This is such a huge world of of what you do. Um, let, let's talk about minor crops and kind of how they become major crops. Like, for ah. instance, the kiwi. Um, you know, t- tell us a little bit about the kiwi as a minor crop, and and what do you think the new kind of crop is going to be in the future, the ma- a major okay. crop? Well, um, it, it, what, what is now called the kiwi fruit was originally Chinese gooseberry, and uh, there are several types. There's a big, fuzzy fruit, or there are small, smaller fruits that are hardy uh, kiwis, as we call them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was brought to actually New Zealand. New Zealand gave it the name kiwi fruit when it was marketing it to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And, and so somehow that name has stuck for a common name. Uh, so yes, um, we, as we go out and explore and we, we're looking for strawberries, but maybe we come on this blue honeysuckle, Lanicera cerulea, which has blue fruit, sort of like a, a blueberry, but it's uh, torpedo-shaped. Uh, the Japanese form is torpedo-shaped instead of being a round globe. Uh-huh. Um, so when we're out there and we see that it's uh, cultivated uh, by the uh, Japanese and the Ainu people, um, we think, well, maybe if this was grown in uh, North America, it could become a crop. So mm-hmm. uh, it, there's uh, different levels of cultivation of, of the different wild crops, and as we find something new, we, we try to bring it into the trade and encourage nurserymen to propagate it up and uh, growers to uh, uh, see the qualities and, and have new fruits for, uh, for everybody to eat. So what do you think the next big fruit's going to be? <laughs> what do you think? Oh, the next big one? Well... Um, it, well, well, for example, like this blue honeysuckle is one that, that is coming along. Uh, another one is one of our own, the native um, Asimina triloba, pawpaw, which is yeah. native to the southeast part, uh, well, even up into Michigan, uh-huh. uh, of, of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's a number of, of these specialty crops that as people are looking to diversify their plant collections and, and farms, um, these are, are becoming potential new crops. And also in this foodie universe that we live in, where food has become so central and you know, um, people are constantly wanting new tastes and new flavors. This work that you're doing, you know, is so important. It directly impacts that. You know, people want to, chefs want to try new things, you know, and that gets passed down. And, you know, 30 years ago, the, the kiwis were not in every supermarket. You know what I mean? Right. And so no. maybe, maybe the blue honeysuckle, which I wonder, what does that taste like? 
Um, it, it's uh, it's uh, a sharper f- flavor. It, mm-hmm. It's a, a high uh, tart sugar ratio, mm-hmm. um, but I really enjoy it in a, in a pie setting. It mm. is really great. Is it um, an attractive? You have to realize that those of us that are on the uh, cutting edge here, we're willing to try things that maybe the the m- middle folks uh, would go, no, I don't like that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Right. We're, no, I, we're yeah. out for the the sharp and and colorful flavors that that we can get to. So. I think you're preaching um, to the chorus here. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, <laughs> we're we're all about food and and new and you know unique. And the blue, honey, blue honeysuckle, is it, a, is it an attractive plant? Is it something that's also ornamental? Yeah, well, it's a shrub, and mm-hmm. it, it has leaves that, uh, it, it's a honeysuckle, so it has uh, leaves that come out at the same, mm-hmm. uh, two leaves come out at one node. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, it, yes, it, it's uh, a, a person, uh, Dr. Maxine Thompson, who's retired from the horticulture department here, is breeding it and releasing mm-hmm. it uh, many types of, uh, Another person, Dr. Bob Boers in Saskatchewan, um, is is trying it for the northern tier of states. So it's a very can be very cold hardy type. And it's the so, shrub so, honeysuckle. The shrub. It's not the vine. The, it's not a a vine. The no. Vine. It, um, right. Now another thing, when I was in Siberia, I collected a very low growing red fruited type of. Um, uh, what one could think of a um, well, they call it rock azalea, and it it only gets uh, uh, six inches or uh, ten inches tall, maybe. Uh, it's a neat, low-growing uh, understory plant. It would be uh, neat in a you know under a tree or in, in shady kind of a thing. The the fruit is like a real um, to me it was like an energy drink. It was just so energizing to have some of this. Um, uh, fruit concentrate that I had when I was in Russia. It was, uh, you know, so there's a lot of relatives of the plants we have now. There's some wild material out there, too, that could expand our taste buds, right. <laughs> for sure. Well, the work that you do is is just amazing, and I'm sorry to say that our time is up. Um, but, Kim, we would love to have you back on to talk more about, I mean, because your your field is so huge and the work that you're doing We've only touched the tip of it. I mean, yeah. we could yeah. see that it's just... It's a I, massive... I'm amazed at how fast the time went. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you and your group. And um, we're always interested to talk about heritage fruits here. Great. Well, thank we you, will Dr. definitely Hart. be in touch with, with future dates. And thank okay. you for listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Please follow us on Facebook. There is prizes in the mix. All <laughs> We're right? bribing you. We people. are bribing you to become our friends, <laughs> just like in middle school. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week on the Heritage Radio Network. Happy gardening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.